Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Great Obsession podcast. Today is a very exciting episode because we are diving into the long-awaited Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes movie that has just come out this month. And we have a special guest here with us today. So, but before we tell you who it is, I'm Riley and I'm drinking a cold brew with uh, Trader Joe's pumpkin oat milk in it. Mm, zesty. Um, I'm yeah. Sam and I am drinking a tea blend that's called Monroe tea. It's basically just a smoky black tea. Very exciting. Wow. How black cozy. Um, my name is Abby Tree and I am drinking a cherry limeade from Sonic. It's special guest, Abby Tree. <laughs> Abby Tree, she's back. So excited. And better than ever, she's back. She's back because <laughs> I think we have a pretty interesting degree of, um, I guess, knowledge about this book between the three of us because I, Riley, read The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes when it came out in the summer of 2020. Uh, Sam has not read it. And Abby, you read it in, quite recently, in August, right? Yeah, a month or two ago, fairly okay. recently. So yeah, like we have you here. You've got it fresh, like pretty fresh in your mind. I have things about the book that I remember really well, and certain things that I had completely forgotten about. And then I'm curious also to hear Sam's perspective on the movie, just because you're not coming at it with. Um, the same like expectations any preconceived notions about what it was going to be yes and i will also add i feel like i'm in the presence of two like really big hunger games fans i have (laughs) read the trilogy but it's like by no means my top favorite series i've seen the movies but i don't think i have the same like i don't remember those books particularly well and so i'm i think I'm really curious to hear your guys' perspectives as, like, true fans. 13-year-old me is shaking in her boots, for sure. (laughs) Oh, same. Okay, wait, but we have to talk about this just real quick. When I rolled up to this theater, it was – so we got there maybe, like, 10 minutes before the show, like, was scheduled to start because the theaters here are never sold out. And it was packed – full of teen girls i saw dead ass a 15 year old girl with a pita blanket it was unreal (laughs) i felt like i had stepped back in time i was shocked that the audience was so young uh and i just thought that that was really interesting that i felt like this this series was clearly transcending generations that is so interesting I know, isn't that wow. really crazy? It's pretty shocking to me because I actually, this had this movie had me reflecting on the original Hunger Games trilogy and, and sort of being like, why was something so sinister, so uh, fangirly for me when I was 13? Because, I mean, the Hunger Games book is the original trilogy. It's violent. Suzanne Collins is not a fan service writer. She kills off characters who everyone loves because she's trying to make a point. And um, I think she did the same with this prequel where it had a lot of potential to be just really fan servicey, And it wasn't really at all, I don't think. And so the fact that we all loved it so much as teenagers and now as an adult, it's still this universe and this world 
that Suzanne Collins has created is so rich that we can really still unpack it. It's just really interesting to me. And I'm also like, how did these teenagers even hear about it? You were six when The Hunger Games I came also out. feel like it was kind of one of the first big dystopian novels because there was like mm-hmm. a huge it wave. Was. And I feel like this one was kind of the first one. Well, and it was by it far was. the most successful. Like it yeah. had the biggest yes. universal appeal, um, which is interesting because it's the most violent, I think, of all the dystopians that I read. Yeah, it is. And I, I don't think Suzanne Collins wrote it with the intention of being like, let me play into this YA dystopia craze, because like you guys said, it was the first one. It was the one that started I think, the whole craze. I, I mean, I think she wrote all of these books because I I've never felt like she wrote these books trying to entertain Mm-hmm. I feel like she always mm-hmm. wrote these books because she had, which goes right back into this book. There's a quote in this book where Lucy Gray says, I don't sing when I'm told, I sing when I have something to say. And I think that mm-hmm. Suzanne Collins is kind of the same. Like, she could have mm-hmm. written this prequel 10 years ago and probably made more yeah. money off of it mm-hmm. <laughs> when it, she was writing high on this wave. But she had something to say and she was ready to write another one. Yeah. No, I think that's so true. I remember when this book came out, people, some of the reaction on the internet was like, I don't want to read a story about a white man and have to sympathize with a, like, they were mad that President Snow was, like, the character being centered, because yeah. I think people had been begging for, like, Haymitch's games or Phoenix games as, like, the next story that we were going to get to see. And so I, I really respect Suzanne Collins for, like you said, Abby, being like, no, I'm not going to write anything else in this uh this universe unless i really have something to say and i i'm really pleased with the way that this book adapted so well into a film because i think the one of the most interesting things about the original hunger games trilogy is that they've got a good villain in president snow and uh and i feel like the development of him as a villain is really well done in both the the book and the, the movie i totally agree so should we get into the character then of Cory Coriolis Snow? Coriolanus? <laughs> Coriolanus Snow. Yeah, it's funny. The whole time I read the book, I I was calling him Coriolanus. And then to hear it said in the movie, I was like, oh, so I'm supposed to say it as if it has anus. You're better than <laughs> I looked it up because I was like, what the fuck is this name? I guess it's a Roman name. That is hilarious. So it's a real name. She didn't make it up. I, well, it's better than me. The whole time I was like, Corey of Huh? Huh? I just, it was just nonsense in my just mind. Just one of those classic things when you're reading fantasy and your brain just like just blows goes over the words without actually thinking it every time. And then the rest is just, I don't know. Well, the way that they could have shortened his name to Corey, but instead they all call him Corio. I thought that I know. was so funny. Ugh, I hate it. Well, the first time they said it, I was like, Oreo? <laughs> I was like, who that? And I was like, does he have some like black and I I thought his hair was going to be like black and white. And like, that's why they were calling him Oreo. Oh and like the, my the fact that that occurred to me is so unhinged because why do they have I'm Oreos in, in Pan Am? That doesn't make any sense. Like what is going on? It's Corey. <laughs> They're literally starving. 
Oh my gosh, that's too funny. <laughs> Suzanne Collins remains committed to naming her characters very unique names mm-hmm. that you don't hear very yeah. often. Uh, because I think none of the characters in this story have predictable names. I mean, Tigress is a crazy name. Yeah. We talked about this before, but... Um, <laughs> and she's part of the original trilogy, of course, but that's kind of a crazy name. Sejanus, also, again, with the anus, these Roman <laughs> names. They've got to stop. <laughs> and the craziest of all, Lucy Gray, unhinged. What was she thinking? <laughs> Oh. It is kind of silly, though, because you get back in the districts and you you learn that the names of everyone in the covey are, like, colors. It's, like, Lucy Gray and Maud Ivory and Billy Tope. Yeah. And so well, it's just... Did not pick that up. I think something Suzanne <laughs> Collins... I mean, you didn't read the book, so that's why. <laughs> Billy Tope's name, I think, is said, what, like, twice in the yeah. movie? But Tope, I feel like you could... Book, that could maybe. be a regular... I don't know. Yeah. Like, I I agree with you. I think that when you see it in the movie, it is a little bit like, come on, be normal, Suzanne. Try a little harder. <laughs> but it's not possible. Anyway, we're getting out in the yeah, weeds we've here. Yeah, we completely derailed. Um, the only thing I really have to say about Snow in this movie is that he is an absolute hottie. I don't know if he's a hottie in the book, oh my God. but I was like, damn, boy. I was like, okay, yeah. I see you committing these crimes. I forgive you. <laughs> wow. Um, zaddy. That's all I've got to say. So true, though. He, and it's funny, too, because if you see like behind the scenes stuff from him, like Tom Blythe is so sweet and so British. And so. Oh, really? I, I didn't he's know he was British. so British. And he's just like a little puppy dog. Like, he's got golden retriever energy for sure. So it's, I don't know. I thought he did a fantastic job. Yes. He was, yes. I I was so blown away um, by how he played yeah. the character. I loved, loved it. I thought it was so good. Yeah. Jack and I left the theater and we were both like, wow, we hope we see him in more stuff because he was really, really talented. And I think particularly because this movie is basically about Snow's sort of slow descent into corruption and evil. And he mm-hmm. he played that in a very convincing and organic way where you see that playing out on his face more so than in his like words yeah and i and i thought that Mm -hmm. that was very talented like wow homie can act yeah i think one of the best examples when lucy gray first gets off the train and she says you know you look like you're not supposed to be here and he goes i'm not and she goes wow a rebel and his it's very small but his eyes he just like opens his eyes a little wider and like has a little moment where you can tell that he hated that she called him a rebel. Mm. And I think it's like those tiny little That's things. That's good. I didn't catch that. That it's in the trailer. You should if you watch the trailer, you can see it. Um but like it's it's really I just thought he was so good at showing those tiny little emotions mm-hmm. that made such a big difference for me. I thought he did a phenomenal job. So having read the book did he fit sort of like with what the book describes and what you imagined when you read it 
I don't remember what his physical description in the book is. Honestly, it didn't seem that important. Um, I don't think it's, yeah, there's not It's not, not much. like, talked oh. about. It's like, you know how there are some books where, like, they say over and over again, like, their hair color yeah. or their, you know, whatever. I don't remember that being very relevant. I think we know he's supposed to be blonde. Yeah. Okay. Well, because I was like, damn, I bet the book talks about how blue this man's eyes are all the time because they were just kept showing like mm. these like deep blue eye so angles. Blue. And I was like, oh, it's got to be edited. And I thought it was going to be like a Harry Potter situation where they talk about his green eyes every two point seconds. Oh. And it's actually really amusing to me that the actor just must have bomb ass eyes. He does. He just does. He really does. I don't know. Well, and I think um, Donald Sutherland, the guy that plays Snow in the original trilogy, also has really piercing blue eyes that are like, he's got this like really sinister gaze. And I feel like Tom Blythe really captured that same energy with his eyes. Something that the book did really well and what made the book really compelling for me was that Snow as a character kind of lures you into this false sense of security that he's he's good Mm. um because you see him for most of the book doing the right things but the the thing is that he's doing the right things for the wrong reasons Mm -hmm. he's he's doing everything in a way that is self-serving and so he's trying to like he's helping lucy gray and you as the reader like lucy gray and you want to like snow so you're like okay we're getting somewhere and it it, you like kind of get invested in both of the characters but then by the end you start to realize when he does really fucked up shit like rat out Sejanus, uh, you realize like, oh, he's been this way all along. He's been really self-serving all along. And you're you're just now starting to get to a point where his actions are having much larger consequences than they did initially. So I feel like the movie and this casting in particular did that really well because, I mean, Tom Blythe isn't out here looking like he's Mr. Evil all the time. Like, you know how some villain origin stories they just look so evil i'm thinking of um (laughs) this is the worst comparison but the star wars prequels anakin trying to be evil like before he turns evil it's just that's a really poorly written script and it's bad and i feel like this movie is what the star wars prequels wanted to be because we actually got to see tom blythe acting his ass off Mm -hmm. as this character who is doing all of the right things for the wrong reasons and who gets upset when the attention is not all on him or when things don't go his way. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think too, like from the book, he's interesting because the book is written from a third person perspective, but you know, only the things that he knows. And it's interesting Mm -hmm. because he always, he, he thinks he's the victim in every mm-hmm. situation. Yes. He always thinks he's the victim. And there are times where, like, it's true, like, some sucky things really happen to him, you know? Like, his parents die and all these things and whatnot. You know, there are bad things that happen mm-hmm. to him, and he sometimes is a victim. But relative to Lucy Gray or relative to some other, to you know, the people in the district, he's just really, he can't, like, there's just a disconnect there. And he doesn't see how he is not always the person that has it the hardest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I will say, as somebody who didn't read the books, I think it was 
confusing for a while to get because I think you're absolutely right Abby but I think having not read the books I was not picking up on that until like the very end because we don't get a ton of his backstory in the movies Mm -hmm. and so it's like I don't know why he's poor I don't know where his parents are I know his dad died but like where's his mom like why is he faking being wealthy what like how is it that nobody there's so many questions in the beginning that I don't understand like who he's supposed to be as a character because his backstory is super unclear in movie and so all the Mm -hmm. all these sort of like moments where he's interacting with lucy gray and he is having um he's like making really conscious choices to either help somebody or not help someone it's it's super unclear to or it was really unclear to me like if he was doing things on purpose like a lot of stuff felt like an accident and i don't know if it was supposed to come across that way that he was like like Mm. accidentally like ended up with lucy in that like zoo cage situation Mm. and therefore Mm -hmm. sort of creates this empathy like bridge to her he accidentally gets his like little school friend bitten by a snake did he mean to do that like was there like it just seems like he's kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time for a decent portion of the film but then towards the end it's like okay is he in the wrong place at the wrong time or was he like actually trying to position himself in a way that put him at an advantage I don't know I think he was a confusing character for the first half of the movie just because I was trying to figure out where he stood because we weren't given any context yeah I think that's very valid I think I, I think it's really interesting the medium of a book versus a movie, whereas mm-hmm. a book you just can get so much detail, and while I you're really in his yeah, head yeah you're in, in his book. head a lot and I think that like I don't I I agree with you that like if I hadn't read the book I would also have been really confused but I don't know as a director and as a filmmaker with the material that you have I don't know that I necessarily disagree with their choice to not give us more backstory to not include as much backstory well, particularly because it was a fairly long film it was longer than i expected when we got to like part three the peacekeeper i was like what which it's like there's more yeah. <laughs> and in the book it's interesting because that's like a lot more of the book than you would think like i remember getting to the part where lucy gray wins the hunger games and being like there is like a whole ass book left what is gonna happen? You still have like two thirds of the book yeah, left like, at that point. What, what is this oh, book interesting. about? Because the movie did that not was actually my biggest. That, way. that was my greatest beef with the book. Yeah, with the movie. Sorry, is that I was gonna was say rushed. the pacing in the book is off. It's too. It's too long. Like we spend way too much time with him in District Twelve as a peacekeeper. I think in the book that was when I came away from it. I was like, that was really difficult to read, and I can respect. That, that was a great How much story, do we but have I didn't hear him whine about it. mocking Jays in that book. Like, I cannot. Bro, literally. And how much do we have to be here about Sejanus's mom sending, sending him, him cookies? Baked goods? Like, that happens every uh, other page. I get it. But in <laughs> the movie, cookies. they really, 
they really pushed us through the the Peacekeeper storyline a lot quicker, which I think is something that the movie did well because it eliminated the pacing issue. At least, I don't know, I thought the pacing of the movie was great. As someone who hasn't read the book, did you feel like it was well-paced, Sam? So I thought it was perfectly paced until we got to the peacekeeping section. That was when I started to lose my bearings on like timeline i don't know how long he Mm. was there i don't know like how long were he and lucy like together there like because from the movie you watch it and it's like okay he's been a peacekeeper there for a day he meets lucy they go on two maybe dates then he murders somebody for her and then they're running away. Like, it seems like he's there for, like, two weeks. Max. Yeah. Which he's I don't know if, for what, maybe he was. No, he's there for longer. I think his relationship. I want to say it was a couple yeah. months. See, it, it did not feel like a couple months. I was like, I have no idea. They no needed, concept. like, the Pride and Prejudice scene of him on a swings in a circle and having the. Yes. Or, like, yes. Bella. The Bella Swan. The Bella Swan. Yeah. The Bella Swan. <laughs> November. Or just, like, a, like a mini montage of them training because i was also confused this is so not necessary they did not need to include this but i was like okay so is he at basic right now or has he already been to basic and now he's deployed and why does tigris not know where in the world he is i was like did he immediately like have to leave like was it not past go okay yeah i didn't I didn't anticipate that. That's something that happens in the book, too, is he gets whisked away, like, the minute the games are over. So he doesn't even know, like, what happens to Lucy Gray after the games are over. He doesn't know if she's alive, if she got back to 12, if she was kept in the... Like, he just disappears, like, immediately. Oh. See, it felt... I As I was watching, until we got to the point where he calls Tigress, I was like, oh, okay. So he went home. He packed up his shit. He, like, reported to the train station. <laughs> like, it was a very casual. Um, and then I was like, wait, okay. he didn't say goodbye? So like, I think the peacekeeping section, all that to say, was just a little bit time-confusing for me. And it also made me more confused about his and Lucy's relationship because I didn't get to see them together very long they were literally just together for like like he kisses her when she's playing guitar in a field which I was like so many fields here why are people not just hiding in the fields (laughs) and then when they go to the lake and those are like the only two moments of them together Together, and I'm like, wait, are they in a relationship now? Like, this seems to have really escalated and they haven't spent any time together. Let me ask you this question, because this is something that came up in the promo stuff this last week. Is the director, somebody asked him if he regrets splitting Mockingjay into two parts, and he says that he did. Oh, yeah. Regret it. Yeah, I saw that. Do you think they should have made this two movies? Or, like, leaned into it being a three-hour movie? I was going to say, having not read the book, I think it's hard to say because I don't actually know what was missing. I think that there could have maybe been like a few simple fixes. Like I think if we had – give me a one-minute montage and I that will place me timeline-wise of like approximately how long they've been there, how much time they've spent together, 
problem solved. Do you just think I, maybe don't cut as many scenes and and make it a little bit like don't worry about necessarily keeping it shorter. Let it be 20 minutes longer and just fill in these holes. Yeah, yeah, cuz I think they were just sort of very simple things that didn't necessarily have to do with the plot at all. I think the plot made sense. I did not feel like the plot wasn't adding up. It just felt like I was confused about the emotional state of the characters at points because they didn't know how much time mm. had passed. Okay. Yeah, and I remember thinking that was sort of unclear as well because I think in the in the book, he like only has certain days of leave from his peacekeeper duties. And so it's like kind of few and far between, but it's over a couple of months that he's like seeing Lucy Gray as regularly as he can. At least Abby, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that's how I remember it. And in the movie, it was sort of like, (laughs) I, I, at one point when he, when they go out to the, the lake, I was like, I thought they, they said the peacekeepers had like the night off. And then suddenly he's just like not doing peacekeeper things at all. Yes. So I <laughs> And it was really unclear. There was a lot of like like playing it fast and loose with like his peacekeeping duties. We really never got to see him actually do any kind of peacekeeping except for like when people were being hanged. And so I was like, how often did this man work? Like this seems like pretty chill. <laughs> I know you guys are just vibing. You're just walking around. Yeah, I feel like they, I mean, the the source material, that's that part of the book is where um, the pacing is pretty off. And and it's sort of like I understand why, because we needed to spend time with him out there in 12 with Lucy Gray. But in the movie, they like tried to shorten it to make the pacing better. But then we lost some of the context. Yeah, I just think that. So it was that part was the beginning of the book is so action heavy. There's just something happening every Mm -hmm. page that. Then to get to the end and to be like, they're living a domestic lifestyle? I don't, hmm, I don't know. I'm bored, you know? Nobody's killing anybody. What's going on? Anyway, I want to talk a little bit about, I mean, we haven't really dove into Lucy Gray's character at all, but the the tension of their relationship, especially while they're out in 12, is really interesting. I think there's a lot to dive into there, but we could kind of backtrack a little bit to the Capitol and talk about um lucy gray as a character and how she interacts with snow from the jump from the moment that he meets her it's interesting because she's performing for everybody else all the time but she's not for him Mm -hmm. even like right off the train that's a good point right off the train she like she's like who are you and he tells her and she's like cool help me you know and she's very upfront with him in a way that she's not with anybody else. Yeah, that that is a good point. And I think, well, here's another thing is, do you think that when, um, I'm not sure how to ask this question actually, but th- there was a part in the movie where she's, they're talking through like the bars of the chimpanzee cage in the zoo. And she says, I wish we could have met under different circumstances you like we could have got a drink and had a dance and at that point in the movie I remember kind of thinking that that came out of nowhere because up until that point the relationship was very much just like him bringing her food and not much else but I think maybe you have a point there Abby that she very clearly performs for everyone else and 
maybe feels like she's able to let her guard down for him from the get-go. Yeah. Okay. I gotta say, did not read the book. Um, did not feel like she was performing for others and not performing for him. That did not come across in the movie to me. I okay. also felt like they had zero chemistry. Like I, the vibes were off between the two of them. Not like in like an awful way. I just... I think that's how it's know. supposed to be. Because I think... I, I mean, we can get into this a little bit more later if you want. But I don't think... Like, she says this, and when they're in the field, like, at the lake, she says, like, trust comes before love, and it comes before, I don't remember what else. But, like, she, I don't think, I don't think she really loves him romantically, and I don't think he does for her either. I think that she sees him as, she sees him as, like, hope, you know, somebody that Mm -hmm. can help her. They both see each other as as somebody to use. I was going to say, I the vibe mm-hmm. I got throughout the whole movie was I felt like they were just manipulating each other. Like, they, I did not... I thought that they were both saw each other as, like, there's attraction there, but the bigger thing is they need the other to serve whatever purpose for them. And then when they get into District 12 and it's less clear how they can, like, serve one another, it that's when things, like, start to fall apart and, like, the paranoia sets in because mm. now they're looking. They're, like, they're trying to figure out how is he using me now? How is she using me now? Yeah. And, I, and so I felt like there was never, like, love, love. No, I don't think there's ever... It's not like Peta and Katniss love kind of a thing. It's no. It's it's uh, what's the word? It's sinister. It's sinister, but it's like transactional. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's cold. It's self-serving on both of their ends. Mm-hmm. But I think more, and, and maybe this is just the impression I got because I've had read the book. But it's more self-serving on his end than on hers because she's in more of a vulnerable position Mm -hmm. uh and so she is kind of having to offer him a little bit obviously more of herself than he's able to offer her well and i sort of got the sense that like she was aware of what kind of self-serving she was partaking in and he was unaware fully of like the level of using he was doing with her and so i and so like there's a certain level of transparency and um i don't know it just feels more permissible to see lucy gray use him because she is vulnerable and it does feel because she's vulnerable it feels transparent that she's using him and therefore like more acceptable versus he does not need to use her to survive and he either is not aware that he's doing it or he's like actively trying to ignore that and like repress that sort of Mm -hmm. acknowledgement which makes it come across more sinister (laughs) i was gonna ask uh your guys's thoughts on the music and like how the role of her performing and singing in her character, what you thought of that? 
Mostly because I saw a meme on the internet where it was a, a clip from the show Victorious where Ariana Grande's character like randomly starts singing for no reason and they're like, this is Lucy Gray the whole movie. <laughs> and I didn't think no. that. Oh. So I was I'm curious what you guys thought. <laughs> I did. I did for sure. Okay. I was like, I was into the music. Jack and I left and we were like, damn, Rachel Zeller can like, she can sing. She's got pipes. For sure. She's got pipes. The like songs were actually quite good. I was like, I would listen to this soundtrack ten thousand percent. But like the like every time, it just felt like it was like 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 you're watching High School Musical, and then they like start breaking into song, and you're like, am I supposed <laughs> to acknowledge that it's weird that they're just randomly singing, or like, are we like just rolling with it? You know how sometimes it's like are they like like what's happening here and so that was kind of it was definitely like a little bit of a jump scare sometimes when you start singing i was like oh okay <laughs> we're doing this and i think that there were elements where it was like un because they they sort of tried to convey that her singing served a purpose for her like um Mm-hmm. You know, with the whole quote of like, I don't like I don't sing when I'm told I sing when I need to or something like that. And they're like, it's unclear. Mm-hmm. Like maybe she sings to snakes and tames them. That was another thing that I did not understand. I was like, what's the deal with the snakes? Um, but like, does she sing because she's sad? I don't know. It was a lot of times where I was like, I feel like they want me to think that she's singing for a really specific reason right now. And I don't know what that reason I think, is. I think a lot of the time I think at the reaping. So at the reaping, the Covey starts singing her first. And that mm-hmm. song, I was listening to it this morning, and the lyrics are basically like, anything that's important enough to me is something that could never be taken away. Right. And so when I they're just, singing that song to her, I think it's like, it's them saying like, don't let him get you, you know? And she sings it like back to them. So that one, I think the purpose is like, she's she's saying something to them and then i think in the arena there's the part with the snakes at the end of the hunger games where she sings and for Mm -hmm. me so that song talks about like dying and like being ready to go to heaven and i think Mm -hmm. that song is i think she thought she was gonna die and she was singing it Mm -hmm. to comfort herself and Mm -hmm. then they didn't kill her and she was like i'm singing so i gotta finish this song i don't know I think maybe maybe that's what it was, is that every time she was in one of those situations, she did. She finished the whole ass song. And, like, that part was weird. Like, yeah. at a certain point, I was like, just fade out, girl. You don't you don't have to sing the whole thing. So I think maybe, <laughs> maybe more so, because I agree. I did, like, especially with the reaping, I thought that initially made a lot of sense. And then it just kept going. And I was like, why is this woman doing a whole ass show right now? And why is no one stopping her? That seems strange. Like, I get that they're like, oh, she's entertaining. But like, she she like lost the emotionality. And it was just like, she was a performer. And I, that, that was kind of, I just think it went too long in both cases, even mm. with the snakes. Interesting. Um. The thing random. is, she sings more in the book. <laughs> so that's why I didn't think she sang yeah. as much as I was expecting, yeah. honestly. Because in the book, it's like every other page is a song. Well, and that was actually one of my favorite parts of reading the book because Suzanne Collins, unlike a lot of writers who try and write lyrics, she's a good lyricist. Mm. Like the whole time I was reading this book, I 
couldn't stop thinking about Daisy Jones and the Six. <laughs> and the I world's regret, worst lyrics. And how bad like, the lyrics are. I'm like, Suzanne Collins <laughs> needed to write Daisy Jones and the Six. Like, go back and fix those lyrics yeah. for us, girl. We need them. Like... So I will say it's interesting to me that you say that she sang more in the book because thinking about that, I think it makes sense for her character and maybe it's just sort of the classic challenge of going from a book to screen adaptation. But I think maybe Mm -hmm. what my biggest beef was with the Lucy Gray singing pieces were it didn't feel like she was just, like, a person singing to themselves. Like, you know, like, when you're, like, mm. like, singing to yourself, it sounds mm-hmm. different than you're if you're on stage performing for an audience. And every time she sang, I think it sounded like she had stepped into a recording studio, sang a whole-ass song, they had done vocals, they had auto-tuned her, whatever, and then they put it in the movie. It did Which not Which is interesting, because like- she actually sang live on set. She, See, maybe she's, she like, quite frankly, like, too big of a belter. Like, too big of she's a She's just performer. too good of a singer. Too good. Like, I don't think it's too good yeah. of a singer. Because Lucy Gray, I assume, is supposed to be a very skilled singer. That's, like, a thing. Mm-hmm. It just never felt like she was singing, like, casually or for herself. It always felt like she was performing for someone, which the moments didn't align with that. Yeah, I guess, I don't know, I kind of disagree with you, because I feel like, like, I understand that it's awkward to watch people sing, no matter when, like, it's just, (laughs) singing's weird, but I, I feel like it really, for me, that's a core part of her character, is that she is a performer, and, and I think that the whole time, at the reaping, like, from the reaping to the end... I feel like a lot of the books she she's just playing people, you know, like she has some moments where like, you know, she starts singing the song, she's freaked out and she's dying. And then she realizes she's not going to die. And she's like, great, got to turn this up for the people, you know. And so I think she's just aware that she's being watched and aware that she's a performer. And so See, she just I think that's it. really interesting um, because I I'm really glad that you brought that up because I don't think when I think Lucy Gray just like as a general character I don't think of her as a performer like I un, like it wasn't until the end when we were in district 12 and I was like ah the the Covey I don't know I didn't put this together I was like oh the the Covey is like maybe like a music troupe yeah and like that's what they do full time as their like job I thought she was mm-hmm. just a girl who liked to sing and like singing no. was her vibe. Oh. I didn't realize that it was like her whole lifestyle thing. That was so now that you say that, I didn't th- I didn't think of her as a professional performer. Yeah. I assumed she like had a regular job and just like sang. Yeah, and I a big part of her her identity is that she's Covey. She does not think she's District 12. She does not consider herself, like, a Pan Am citizen. She considers herself a member of the Covey. I, so I thought that the Covey were, like, like a band of orphans. Kind of. Like, they, I, I, I think they are now. I think a lot of their parents died in the war. But they're, like, 
yeah they're like, they're like a, a traveling music troupe that's yeah. what they are yeah yeah and mm-hmm. then and now they're not it's allowed like found to travel family anymore. yeah mm-hmm. yeah okay yeah and it is i mean they kind of are a band of orphans because i feel like from what i remember from the book most of the covey members are younger than yeah. her and she's what 17 mm-hmm. so uh they're all pretty young but it is like before she gets called in the reaping singing as like the leader of the covey was what she did every single day yeah yeah she also i don't know that the movie made this clear but like she writes all of the lyrics and the songs that she sings. Mm. And so she plays an interesting role in like the Hunger Games universe as a whole because uh, it's clear that she wrote the Hanging, the Hanging Tree. Tree song. Yeah. And um, this wasn't in the movie, but the the song that Katniss sings to Rue in the first movie when she's dying, uh, Lucy Gray writes that song in the book as well. So it's just interesting, like... I guess District 12 lore that like Lucy Gray was this victor who wrote all this music and then all the folk songs got passed down through generations to Katniss. Interesting. So one other follow-up I have on Lucy Gray, which I will say, I don't, well, what did you guys think about the casting of Lucy Gray? 10 out of 10. I thought it was great. I I feel, like, sort of torn just because what you said, Sam, about her, like, singing a little bit too well. I think I agree with just in the, I don't know. I guess the way that Rachel Zegler was performing uh, so intensely as if she was on Broadway in every scene where she was singing was, like, a little bit much for me. Don't you think that's who Lucy Gray is? Like, don't you think that, like... Katniss as a character is very stoic and she like is freaked out the whole time and Lucy Gray the whole time like that's who she is as a person she's intense she's a theater kid that's being forced to fight the the Hunger Games she's dramatic she is that is true I don't know I, I guess I can't quite put my finger on like what was off for me but like the beginning part where she um she gets called in the reaping and then she goes up there and then she sings and then she like bows really dramatically. That was all, I guess it's, I mean, that happens in the book, but I was all like, this is a little much for me. I don't know that I, I don't know that I could put my, so my finger on it. I mean, it I think Rachel the, Zegler did a great job. Do you think job. it was like her as an actress or do you think it was just like the character choices? It may have just been the, the choices that were made. And not necessarily Rachel Zegler's fault, but I didn't love that she was trying to do a Southern accent. Yeah. (laughs) So I did not love the casting. However, as I just said, from the storyline, I was not picking up that she was supposed to be a performer. Like I was like not getting the vibe that she was a theater kid. I was like, I think maybe there was like a lack of, I'm going to say like charisma and outgoingness that Mm -hmm. made it. So she only performed in sort of like odd, like if we, if we're going by this idea that she's just like a performer, the moments where she was performing were like kind of odd and like inconsistent. It's like, not like she, I don't know. She just like, wasn't 
like Riley said, she would just have these moments where it was like very Broadway, which is Rachel Ziegler's niche. That's what that's how she's trained is to be Broadway. And it was like over exaggerated. But then in the next scene, she's not. And so then I'm like, that's like, I don't understand why it's such a variation. Um, Hmm. And yeah, the Southern accent, I was going to ask if that's a big part of the book because I hated it. And maybe that was what like the biggest <laughs> turnoff was for her acting was it was so clear to me that she was acting because the accent wasn't real. So it took me out of it. Poor Rachel Zegler, her two, the only two movies she's been in, she's had to do an accent in both and poor girl. I, I mean, <laughs> she she's decent in West Side Story. I liked her in that. I, I did too. I did, not... I did too. Um, I think it's interesting. It is a part of the book and it is like some of her things are written phonetically. So like the accent is kind of written oh, into really? the dialogue at some points. I forgot about that. So I think they I I think it. that they had to do it. I don't think I don't think she had a choice. So Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I think, think I think if you're going to blame somebody, blame Suzanne. Got it. For that. Got it. But- or the casting. <laughs> like, I, I do think it's challenging because I sort of left the theater and I was like, all right, she was cast because she can sing. I did not feel like she was cast mm-hmm. because she could act this character perfectly. I felt like they did a cost-benefit analysis and they went singing. If she's a bad singer, that's going to be worse than if she's a subpar actor. I think that's valid. I think, I don't know. I, I just really like her as an actress, to be honest. And I know that some people really don't like her as an actress. Um, I thought she did a good job. There weren't... I I don't know. I just think that this is just something interesting about how different people consume media. Because Mm -hmm. I I acknowledge the things that you're saying, but for me, they just didn't bug me. You know, I didn't feel pulled out of the story by by the long songs. I can admit that they're long, but it just didn't pull me out. And I just... It didn't bug me. I liked it. Good. You know what I think is what's what was off for me was not actually the songs. Because, like, the more I've been thinking about this, I'm like, no, she did really give the Lucy Gray's, like, th- Broadway kid, theater kid quality. Um, it's the lack of chemistry with Snow, mm. I think, is what it is. Because in the book, they do kind of have some chemistry, and that's part of the tension between, like, their relationship is that they have this chemistry and they clearly are attracted to each other, but they both, of course, are self-serving and manipulating each other. And they're also, neither of them fully trusts the other. And I, I guess I just don't really feel like that came through from her end no. when her and Snow were interacting. It's probably, let's be real, it's probably just because her boyfriend was on set and she didn't want to. I know! <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, what was so crazy is Jack was like, Sam, I swear that guy is in West Side Story. And I was like, no way he's in West Side Story. And he was like, no. I, we're literally in the theater. He's like, no, I swear. So Janus was in West Side Story and he's dating Rachel Ziegler. And I was like, you're insane. I don't know what you're talking about. And then I looked it up and I was like, how did you know that? I was shook. So she initially, they tried to cast her and she turned down the role. And then they cast him. And then she accepted the role. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious that's interesting. of her. I will say, do we want to transition into Sejanus? Yes. Yeah. I 
Oh, man. Sejanus is a character that I, like, want to love him, but I he's so stupid. So I'm like... Yeah. Like, I yeah. it's interesting because as a character, he's kind of like our moral compass, right? Like, he's the person who... He's what we're thinking. He's like, you're all monsters. This is the worst. Why are you guys doing this terrible thing? But he just has no sense. <laughs> you're like, Sejanus, shut up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like... Yeah, it's really giving, I will say, it didn't bother me as much because I felt like it was really giving, like, some, like, rich, protected kid goes into, like, regular people world and Mm -hmm. has no Mm -hmm. sense of consequences because Mm -hmm. he's been so protected. Um, I, however, also felt like he was supposed to be our moral compass and I just didn't ever particularly like him I didn't dislike him I just had no thoughts and I kept forgetting who he was I think this is some this is probably my biggest critique of the movie um Mm -hmm. and I don't know how they would have changed it but this is like one thing that I'm like oh it sucks that they didn't do this is we were talking before and Sam you didn't know that Sejanus like anything about his backstory and right. how, like, he's from District 2 and, like, grew up there and went to school with Marcus and was, like, kind of friends with Marcus. And then in the war, his dad got rich off the war and betrayed um, the districts and moved to the capital. And so Sejanus, like, I think that brings so much to his character that just did mm-hmm. not come out in the movie. And I think that's what makes him, mm-hmm. like, an interesting character to me is because this whole time, like, in the book, he is, like, at war with himself, where he's, like, I just, he just feels so guilty, and he wants mm-hmm. to help Marcus, and he wants to do all these things, um, but he's just too stupid to know how to actually do anything worthwhile, mm-hmm. um, because he is mm-hmm. sheltered um, and out of touch, and so I think that's my biggest critique, is I wish they would have given us more about Sejanus's backstory, so that I would have felt like his actions were more real, like reasonable. Yes. Yes. Because I think just finding out that that is his backstory and that his dad, like his wealth comes from such a clear betrayal against the districts and is like comes from such a place of like deep violence makes him so much more complex because in the movie without knowing that, you're just like he's an like an outrageously good moral person and it's like almost Mm -hmm. unrealistic because you're like uh, my perspective which I will say as I told you guys before we started recording I thought he was the president's son this whole time (laughs) so I was real confused by that um I knew he was from district two but I was like his dad got elected president and then he moved to the capital I clearly do not understand how this government works I was <laughs> lost but I think that I thought like oh he's a guy who's been raised around like this wealth and like this casual violence mm-hmm. towards the district and yet and everyone else is corrupt and, like, buys into it except for him. And he's the only one who, like, has this moral compass and, like, sees that this is problematic. And it, and because we don't get the backstory and I fundamentally, under like, misunderstood his, like, 
character origins, it seems like he is such a white knight of like a fairy tale, one dimensional, doesn't yeah. make any logical sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I and I think that's maybe why his character became so it, I think he's just so one dimensional on yeah. screen. Yeah. Because we don't know we don't understand his motives well, except that he wants to do good. It's also interesting because in the book also, Sejanus has a really complicated relationship with his dad, especially because he doesn't respect what he did. And his mom a little bit too. But it's interesting because you don't really see this very much in the movie. But in the book, like, Coriolanus totally steals his life. Like, very slowly, just like... They're, his parents love Coriolanus because they think he's, like, his friend and he's helping him and all these things. And so very slowly, like, Sejanus's parents continuously are disappointed by Sejanus and, like, don't know what to do about it. And at the same time, their relationship with Snow kind of picks up. And then towards oh. the end, Sejanus dies. And they're like, new son that we actually want? Congratulations, have our fortune, you know? So it's... I agree with you. I think on the in the movie he came off as very one dimensional, and he's he just seems like he's he's somebody who is out of touch and rich and tries to do good things but doesn't know how. And then he's just the person that gets caught in the crossfire when Coriolanus needs somebody to blame. You know, needs somebody to help boost him up. Right. Like you're not really rooting for him, and I feel like in the book. I was rooting for him more. In the book... He's a in more, the, like, in, sympathetic Yeah, character. in the book, I was always like, don't trust him, dude. Don't trust Snow, you know? And you're worried about him the whole time because you see what's... You know, kind of... Yeah. You don't know what's going to happen to him, but you know it's not going to be good. And so... But mm-hmm. in the movie, I was like, when's Sejanus going to die and this movie's going to get on with it? You know? <laughs> like... So, <laughs> get it over with, Sejanus. I, <laughs> I do have a question because <clears throat> when Sejanus does die i sort of left the theater unclear and maybe it's supposed to be unclear i'm not sure where i was like okay did snow send the recording because like obviously he wanted to get sejanus in trouble because he was helping the rebels and he was gonna create problems for snow but did he think that he was going to be executed for it or did he think that he was like so powerful, like his dad's so powerful that he gets out of every every time he, he can do whatever he wants because his dad always gets him out of trouble. And so he assumed it'll get him out of my way. But it did he know that it was going to result in his death? Do you remember from the I book? Do. Abby? I, I don't, don't think that I mean, in the movie, he does say like, um, your daddy will pay for your thing or whatever and get you out of it and I'll die. So I do think that there was a real fear from Coriolanus's perspective where he thought like, I am connected with this dude and he keeps doing these things and I'm going to get caught up in it even if I don't want to be. And so I think the act of him betraying Sejanus is, it's kind of both. Like it's definitely out of self-preservation. He mm-hmm. feels like it's it's you or me and I'm going to take care of number one. But I also, I don't think he thought he was going to die. And, like, in the book, he doesn't, um, he doesn't know that, like, in the movie, he doesn't know that he's caught until he sees him walking to the gallows. Like, that's when he realizes that he's dead, he's going to die. 
And then he has this whole sort of like mental breakdown when he's in the barracks and he's like going through his stuff. And does that happen in the books? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. In the books, the other thing too that's interesting is he goes through his stuff before. He's like going through his trunk. I think he does it maybe multiple times. Winston Jane is still dead? alive. Yeah. Oh. He's like snooping and he finds a bunch of money and he finds like the diploma and stuff. And he really like Coriolanus hates Sejanus so much from the beginning <laughs> because he sees him as this. He sees him as district. He doesn't see him as capital. And he sees him as this person who has this life that he should have. But he doesn't deserve it, you know? And he So are they not friends? Like does he not like him? No, Coriolanus hates him. I Coriolanus does not think of them as friends. Oh, I really felt like in the movie Coriolanus was like, yes, this is my best friend. No. But I'm choosing to like sacrifice him to save myself. No, in his like inner monologue all the time, he's like, Why the heck does Sejanus keep coming to sit by me? He keeps associating himself with me and this dude, like, because Sejanus, I think, like, you see it in the beginning a little bit. All the other mentor people are, like, making fun of Sejanus before he comes up. And mm-hmm. I think that Coriolanus was, like, he would have made fun of him, but he he didn't say anything outright. And so Sejanus kind of attaches himself to Coriolanus and Coriolanus hates it. Wow, that makes me actually so sad. That just took away from like the Snow's character so much for me. So I I will say I I felt like in the movie I got the sense that Snow was a pretty decent or at least net neutral guy in the beginning. And like he had real relationships and real people that he cared about and over the course of the film he circumstances change and he gradually loses and like ruins each of those relationships until it's just like him standing at the end um but i feel like knowing that he never liked sejanus makes it seem like he was like pretty nefarious from the start is that wrong i i think about so like the very first scene of the movie is when like they see the dude like eating the other the dead dude him and Tigress, and that's in the very beginning, and he talks about that a lot more in the book, and I really feel like, like, there's the line that Tigress says where she's like, like, you don't know what you'll do to survive until you have to, and I think that there's kind of this theme of a lot of people that moment came for them during the war, you know, and kind of like we were, I think we talked about this a little bit before, like, it's interesting because there's the Hunger Games, and then there's the Game of Life, and mm-hmm. and Coriolanus is playing the long game, and mm-hmm. he realizes that from a very young age when he I think that seeing that man, you know, become a cannibal and eat that woman's leg or something, at a very young age I think that really affects him, and he realizes like I have to survive and I'm gonna have to do stuff that I don't like to survive, and I think that that's very at the core of who he is is he's just trying, he's trying to be the victor. He wants to win the game of life. He doesn't want to die. He doesn't want to lose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the, it's interesting that you like raise that beginning part because that, it was like confusing. It was too brief. I didn't understand that they were in the capital at the beginning 
and like that that was during the war it, it was like First of all, it says at the beginning, it says three years before the first Hunger Games. And so then when it jumps to him being like, like full grown snow, we thought that only three years had passed. (laughs) And Jack and I were like, yo, this doesn't make any sense. Like this kid was like five. And finally, finally, like literally halfway through, I was like, Oh my gosh, it's been like 13 years because the Hunger Games have been happening for 10 years. And so I think that beginning was really lost on us. And it did not, I did not connect it that much to his like broader character. And I think that maybe would have been added a lot more depth to Snow's character if I had connected that scene more. Yeah. And like the survival undertones. Yeah. Also, going back to his relationship with Sejanus a little bit, because I think we've kind of established that it was like a survival mechanism for him in a way because he saw that he could benefit from being friends with Sejanus. I also think, and maybe the movie added this element that wasn't there as much in the book, or maybe it was, I just don't remember, but like Sejanus was Snow's only friend or like the only familiar face out in District 12. And so Snow was like, like didn't really enjoy being friends with Sejanus in the capital, but then he gets sent out to district 12 and he thinks he's going to be out there for the rest of his life. And then Sejanus shows up and he's like, Oh, you know, I was contemplating ending my life until you showed up. And so I think, and I think that's for a multitude of reasons, which is one, he sees Sejanus and he's like, Oh, now this could be my in to get back to the capital because his parents like me, but also it's a familiar face uh, in when Snow's been thrown into a really unfamiliar situation. And so I do think there's an element, at least in the movie, of them actually forming some kind of friendship or, like, bond in which they care about each other, more so Sejanus caring about Coriolanus than the other way around. But I thought the scene where he cries when he finds the photo of them together in Sejanus's things was really compelling and really powerful emotionally because you see that he's sort of warring with like this guilt that he has but also this knowledge that he feels like he had to throw Sejanus under the bus in order to for his own self-preservation and I, I think that's like a a through line of Snow's character throughout this story is that he's constantly like he's he's so close like a lot of the times he does the right thing it's just he always does it for the wrong reason and now he's at this point where he does the wrong thing by turning in his friend and he's 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 grappling with that like he's like I got a bad outcome here there's very small moments throughout the entire story that he continuously is making these decisions that just get a little bit worse, a little bit worse, a little bit mm. worse. And then there's one that he can't handle, which is when Sejanus dies. And then that's when he finally, like, I just think it's so interesting when he is in, when they're leaving District 12 and Lucy Gray asks him, like, I don't want to kill any more people. And he says, three's enough for me. And I think... Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting because he's acknowledged, like, I've killed three people. And he thinks it's going to stop. But it's not. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think it also, I think that moment was important. 
important because it showed us that he is not like I think it like protects us from the sort of like the Anakin thing where he just like starts mass murdering people. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. Snow kills the first person he kills. It, he like does it because that guy is actively like trying to kill him. And then the second one he kills because they're actively trying to kill Lucy Gray, sort of, well, you know, it's a whole gun thing. And then Sir Janus is, the, is finally the first one that he does where there's not an active threat against him. It's just there's a possibility of, like, a real threat. Mm-hmm. And so That's you, so interesting. You see that there's, like, a bit of an escalation, but... And in that moment when he says three is enough for me, it's like, okay, it's not that he's deriving like enjoyment from killing these people. He's not like a serial killer who's like, ah, like getting off on killing people and it makes him feel super powerful. It's more so this gradual justification that killing is acceptable if it means surviving and succeeding and he gradually keeps moving that line of what it means to survive i think and then and like once you it becomes clear that he's willing to move that line it's like okay well now he's like fully transitioned into evil but i think him saying like three is enough for me tells us that he hasn't descended into pure madness. There's still a logic there. Mm-hmm. And he still feels like he has a moral compass. Even though we as the viewer can be like, okay, but that's like, that's pretty shifty. I think it yeah. was an interesting mm-hmm. line to have. I think too, I really like what you said. Because the first person he kills, it's in the moment. That person's going to kill him right now. The second time, it's it's not that person's going to kill him right now. But they're going to go tell and they're going to get me in trouble. And that could get me killed. And the third one, it's like, I think it's interesting that he's plan, he's making plans further yes. and further into the future. That's a good point. And that's when he becomes President Snow. And then he goes back to the Capitol and mm-hmm. all of his actions, you know, killing Dean Highbottom, that, Dean Highbottom that wasn't was going to kill him. Planned. That was yeah. mega planned. And why did he do that? He didn't do it because of revenge. He did it, I'm sure, for a real reason. Like, it just, it becomes clear that he is totally fine eliminating anyone who could pose a threat to him or get in a way in the way of his which with lucy gray in the cabin she says something like he says we could we could get rid of these guns and he goes she goes then all the loose ends will be tied up and she goes except for me and when she said that, I was like, you idiot. Yeah, it's the loose ends. I know. I was like, why did you just say that? Spooky. <laughs> He's going to kill you. Okay. I do have a question, though, because that particular scene, I'm glad that you brought it up, was – so it's a really charged scene. I think the actors did a good job. It's just that there's no dialogue. I'm not in anyone's head. And so it was a little unclear to me – what exactly was happening and if Lucy Gray was she trying to, like like I I was confused like because I at what point does she realize that they're enemies and no longer in this together yeah yeah 
And like, was the snake on purpose? Is she a snake whisperer? I don't understand the snakes. Like the idea that she can get a snake to just lay under this scarf for an indeterminate amount of time until he walks by and then bite him. That doesn't make any sense. That's magic. That's not logic. (laughs) I don't know. I think the answer is yes, she is a snake charmer. Ask Suzanne. I don't know the real one. But like, I think that is kind of like snakes are her homies and... I don't know. She she asked this one very politely if he would stay <laughs> under the stay scarf. right there. <laughs> and, and like, to was bite. the snake. So, and I think maybe that also is something is like he gets bitten by the snake. And so everything after that point, I was like, is he poisoned and he's hallucinating? I don't think so. That the snake bite, I think, just makes him mad. I don't think it actually does anything to him so but then he sees her and he shoots her but then she disappears before his very eyes i was like there's not even shrubbery hiding here i don't understand how she got up and ran away i didn't like that in the in the movie to be honest because in the book it's a lot less clear i don't i don't know what you thought riley yeah but in the book it's a lot less clear there's like a scream and the mockingjays carry the scream and you don't know if he hit her mm-hmm. or if she screamed far mm-hmm. away and the Mockingjays carried the sound to him. And she's, like, trying to trick him. So when the Mockingjays start singing her song, because that was another thing. I was like, when did this woman have time to, like, stop, <laughs> sing to the birds, oh, and then, yeah. like, that scare them? That part was weird. I was so – and that's why I thought he was hallucinating. It was I thought artsy, he was, like, but it didn't make sense. Yeah. Like, having a moment. <laughs> Yeah, oh, I I forgot about that part in the movie because the the song part was weird, but I I remember in the book I really liked how uh, how the ending was really left open to interpretation because he basically he sees like I think he sees like movement yeah. in the trees or something, but he doesn't actually see her and he just shoots in the general direction of the movement and then he hears the screams like Abby said but he doesn't know if she's screaming from close to him if he hit her or if it's from far away and he can't find any trace of her besides those footprints that disappear and so it's like it ends up being left open that we don't know if she got away or if she died or what happened but he never And hears it's a callback to the song cuz earlier in the book she tells him that she was named after this character in a song that her parents would sing with the cubby the Lucy Gray song that she's singing, like, I think at the lake. And in the song, it's about this girl who runs away and, like, gets in trouble and runs away. And there's snow and they get to the bridge and the snow, the footprints stop. And so people don't know if she jumped off the, or, like, fell off the bridge and died. Or if she somehow got away. And so it's like a legend that Lucy Gray is out there. I've forgotten about the song. And so it's like a parallel the ending of the book is like a parallel to that song. Wow. I love that. I did not did not pick up on that at all. Did not know that the shoe prints stopped at any point. Which they do in I, the movie. They they stop and he can't find her footprints anymore. Well, I saw him like look at the footprints and then I didn't understand why he stopped following them. It's now apparent to me that they must have gone away and I just didn't understand that. I also, deadass, when she was singing the Lucy Gray song, I was like... Wow, it's so weird of her to write a song about herself. (laughs) I did not realize at all that it was like, and then he was like, how does it end? And I I thought that it was a song of, that she was like writing a song about them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how I would have thought anybody would have gotten that from just the movie because it wasn't explained. 
but it's very deep. I'm glad you <laughs> explained it. Yeah. It's it's like one of my favorite parts of that book. They really did not give us the Lucy Gray song or much of it in this movie, which I think is just, again, she sings way more in the book, so you get way more songs. <laughs> but yeah, we didn't get as much of that um, parallel. Okay, well, here's another element of their relationship that I don't know came across as much in the movie, but that I loved from the book is that his like love for her or his feelings for her mostly are feelings of ownership because he he gets really jealous if he feels like she's getting attention from anyone else or anyone else is like gaining something from her so i remember he's like kind of upset initially about that song about billy tope because it's like why are you singing about another boy and then uh throughout the rest of the games he really feels this like sense of like she's my tribute and when people and when she succeeds at something and people congratulate her instead of congratulating him, he gets upset. Yeah. And then that uh, sort of makes the relationship even more complicated once they leave the games and she's not like his tribute anymore, but he still feels this sense of ownership over her. And I, I guess I just wish that element was more present in the movie because I remember thinking that was really interesting. Like you see kind of from the jump that he has this twisted idea of what love is Mm -hmm. and that explains his descent into corruption yeah Yeah. well said i guess maybe we could just make a few little like shout outs about things we like just wanted to shout out viola davis for playing dr gall and she was terrifying and i thought she did a great job um i want to talk about the costuming Mm. I thought it was amazing. The most, yes. The thing that stood out to me the most is Coriolanus's rose on his lapel. It starts out as white. In the second act, it's yellow, and in the end, it's red. And I thought that was really interesting. Wow, so perceptive. Oh, I didn't catch on to that. I really loved Lucy Gray's dress uh, because in the book, that's like a really important element is her dress and how colorful it is. And it really makes her stand out from the rest of the tributes. But it's also like very clearly like kind of strange and like a, a, a district's dress that would never be worn in the Capitol. And so I just feel like that would be kind of a, a difficult brief when you're designing a, a costume. And I feel like they did that yeah. really well. I, agree. Um, I also loved going off of visuals in the arena uh first of all the arena looked exactly like i pictured in the book but also after it like blew up and there was kind of debris everywhere the debris laying in the middle was like vaguely cornucopia. uh reminiscent of the cornucopia which i really loved how they i don't know just made those like visual ties back to the original trilogy. how creepy was the enjoy the show enjoy the show oh i know oh my spooky gosh. i as much as so i loved this film i will admit I watched about 80% of it through my fingers. I was terrified the whole time. I, yes, no, I was so freaked out. I was like, holy shit, I should have read this book. This is, there, it was a scary movie. And I texted Riley this after I got out. I was like, okay, I'm so stupid. I really should have picked up like the title of this book and movie is The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Had no did not realize there were going to be so many snakes. It was like snakes on snakes on snakes. I, every time I thought I was safe from the snakes, it's like another snake. I hated it. I hate snakes. And they were crawling all over. And it, there were some me. good was, jump scares. There were some good jump scares. 
Something I loved about this, and even Jacob pointed this out after we saw it, is he was like, I felt like in this movie, the imagery of like the people actually being malnourished and impoverished was very clear. Mm. And in the original Hunger Games trilogy, specifically the first movie, I remember that being a criticism that people had. I mean, I was like 14. Everybody so was, was too, too hot to think of this, but movie. I remember back then everyone was like, everyone in this movie was too hot and too clean and too well fed. Like it, it, it just gave like kind of a sugar coated sanitized visual of this actually pretty graphic depiction of, poverty and violence in the books and this movie i feel like did not hold back on those visuals because maybe you know it's been 10 years they felt like they could deliver more of um that kind of violent imagery because people are already invested in this series anyway i just felt like this movie is probably the most sinister of all of the hunger games Mm. movies and i really appreciate that about it because I mean, it's a dark story, a dark world, and I'm glad they didn't sanitize it for this movie. Agreed. I think, hot take, I think this is my favorite Hunger Games movie. Wow, that is a hot take. I'm not ready. I need more time to figure out how I feel. I felt like it was maybe the most well-made. Like, I felt like there was Mm -hmm. a lot of intentionality behind everything and the visuals were very intentional in a way that I don't Mm -hmm. think the original Hunger Games were like they were like oh Mm -hmm. you know just play like the books blah 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 make it pretty and like this one it was like okay no we're doing this to evoke this and like you said with the rose like that's such a minor little detail that I think we wouldn't have seen in the the original trilogy. No, I think in the original trilogy, this is something that I find so fascinating about the Hunger Games as a concept and as a world, is Suzanne Collins basically in, like, a lot of the point of the capital and all these things is she's saying we're entertained by brutality and we're not seeing, we're not, we're missing the point. And I, I could, like, see this book being one that people read... In school and, like, really getting into and, like, learning something from. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I wrote an essay about The Hunger Games, the book, in college. And I remember being very, like, it was kind of an eye-opening experience visiting, revisiting it from, like, a college literature class lens and diving more into, like, the political aspects of it. Because, of course, as a teenager, it was all about PETA versus Gale. Yeah, yeah like, going back to your guys' point, I think that with the movies, they they wanted a commercial success. They made the movies to be entertaining mm-hmm. initially. Mm-hmm. They didn't make them to say something. Well, and I think there's something to be said about the fact that these are YA books and their audience is supposed to be teens essentially. And I think because Mm -hmm. the subject matter is so violent and intense, I do think they had to walk a line, especially with those first movies of this has Mm -hmm. to be something that a parent is comfortable letting their 13 year old go and see. And so therefore we do need to soften the edges. It's a new franchise. Nobody's seen it. Like it needs to be palatable to the mass markets. And that means that we need to, we need to make it polished and we need to make it pretty. And I think they had their base well enough in hand for this film and I think they probably assumed that their base was also, you know, late 20s, 30s and can handle mm-hmm. seeing a more 
darker, grittier, intensive scene. Well, there we go. I will be rewatching the Hunger Games movies I know. now oh, because me too. this is like reignited my my interest da, da, in them. Da, da, da. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, <laughs> thank you so much for listening. Uh, this was so fun and so exciting to talk about and revisit this universe that you know we were so invested in as teenagers. Um, if you want to get in contact with us, let us know what you think. Check our show notes. You can find our Instagram, our email, and our Goodreads there. Also, make sure you follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and review if you enjoy our podcast, especially on Spotify. It takes like 0.2 seconds to give a five-star rating, and we really appreciate it. Uh, And we will upload every Tuesday, so keep an eye out for new episodes every week. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.